Why not become a My Perfect Console Patreon supporter? For just $5 a month, you will get your episodes early and ad-free. You'll get access to the members-only My Perfect Console Community Lounge. You'll receive guest announcements exclusively before the general public. You can pitch questions to future guests, download bonus episodes in which guests answer those questions, and vote in the annual My Perfect Console Best Console of the Year knockout competition coming later in 2023. Hop along to www.patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and become a supporter. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an English programmer, game maker and president of the Kyoto-based video game studio Q Games. Born in London, he dropped out of school at the age of 17 to join Argonaut Games, where, among other titles, he worked on the Game Boy Space Combat title X. The project so impressed Nintendo that the company invited my guest to Japan where he contributed to Star Fox, a now legendary Super Nintendo dogfighting game featuring an anthropomorphic fox. 
After a stint working for Sony in America, my guest returned to Japan to join the development team behind the PlayStation 2, creating the famous Ducks in a Bath tech demo. In 2001, he left Sony to found his own company, creating the brilliant Pixel Junk series of games, and most recently, the dystopian world-building game, The Tomorrow Children. Welcome, Dylan Cuthbert. Hi there. Good uh, good description. Hi, Dylan. Any mistakes in there? Uh, no, I think that's about right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. We've made quite a lot of games over the years. Yes. Yeah, you have. I was on the... Uh... I was on your uh, your gameography list. It's very long. Um, yes, <laughs> we'll we'll definitely like get into this a bit later. But I just was interested. Uh, you know, you were at Nintendo during this sort of very uh, exciting period of Super Nintendo development and worked on one of the most beloved games for that system. You know, I will always imagine Nintendo in Japan to be a bit like the chocolate factory. Is it is it really that different to other studios? Um, when you got there? Uh, yes, it was uh, basically like a, a bit like a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> it was, as you mean, it just a bit just, sterile, the environment. It was very, uh, very uh, lots of white corridors, tiny little foldable chairs everywhere, you know, and uh, the desks were really low. Like for, for Oompa Loompas. <laughs> yeah, it felt very, yeah, it felt very sterile. It felt, yeah, it was very, but interesting, interesting. I mean, at the time, I didn't know much about Nintendo, so uh, it was quite a surprise to see such a large building for a games company, where in in, in England, we were also working out of semi-detached houses and stuff like that. <laughs> People's bedrooms. What was, your, what was your first day? Do you remember, did you have an induction or anything like that? Or were we just shown one of these folding chairs and left to get on with it? No, initially, because we were there for a week to kind of demo what we were doing with Argonaut, there was, uh, we, we were kind of ushered into a meeting as like, you know, I was like foreign dignitaries, <laughs> even though I was only like 18 at the time. You know, all the Japanese staff, all the you know, people who were pretty famous, but I didn't know them then. Uh, or yeah, I hadn't even heard of them then, you know, like Miyamoto um, and Sakamoto and people like that. Uh, were all, all kind of ushered in from the other side wearing their like Nintendo blazers. <laughs> and so initially it was just a really interesting uh, experience. Uh, very, very different Um so anything I'd experience in the UK, that's for sure. Yeah, you must have felt like you'd j- just been dropped into sort of some sci-fi setting, this white-walled yeah. <laughs> sort of building with uh, then uh, um, yeah, people dressed identically. Yes. And um, I, I mean, <laughs> y- y- you mentioned there um, Miyamoto coming to the room, of course, the creator of Super Mario and Sakamoto, the creator of the Metroid series. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I, I suppose you didn't have any sense of trepidation showing them your work um, at the time because you weren't sure who they were. But retroactively, did, did you feel uh, intimidated by that scene? No, no. I mean, I've never heard of them. Uh, I don't, I, at that point, I hadn't played Mario ever. <laughs> so uh, because I grew up on the Spectrum and the Amiga and the Nintendo, the the NES wasn't actually directly available in the UK at that point. Uh, It came out about a year later, the NES, uh, or maybe half a year later after that. Um, So this is like pre-Super Nintendo. So around 1989 or 1990, somewhere around there. And then the NES was launched kind of, well, I mean, you could get it in England if you really tried, but they kind of relaunched it uh, with a local distributor. I think it was like Bandai actually at the time. And uh, they launched it in a, with a Super, Super Mario Brothers 3 bundle. Huh. And I actually got that. Huh. <laughs> like in 1990, I got an, an NES with the, with the Mario 3 bundle. Yeah, after <laughs> I met Miyamoto. Wow. 
Maybe that counted in your favour, the fact that you, you, you know, didn't feel starstruck in this, uh, in this meeting. Yeah, we were talking back and everything. It was, uh, there's no, there, were, there was no trepidation whatsoever. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> you were cocky. <laughs> and you, you mentioned there that you, you know, had, be, had been um, in, in, in the UK and worked at uh, these studios in sort of terrace houses. When did, when did video games first, first enter your life? What was the first computer that you owned as a family? Family, that would be the uh, ZX81. Um, but I borrowed, I borrowed one before then. But the first game I ever played was at my uncle's house, and he he got like Pong in the late seventies, mm. and that was kind of cool. I was like, wow, this, you know, we, we played for a bit. It was didn't Pong never really had any kind of longevity, really, does it? I mean, it was a mm. it's a pretty simple game, uh, but when you first saw it, it had like a like a strong like uh, impact, you know. Mm. And then you played it for like thirty minutes, and you didn't play it anymore. But it's just a bit too simple. But the later on, you know, I mean, a few years after that, like all the the Atari home consoles and the Intellivisions and all those kind of things started coming around. And of course, the Sinclair stuff. Uh, a friend's dad got a Sinclair ZX eighty one because he was a bit of a synth head. It's like in the seventies, like really old school synth. And he wanted there was like a, an interface for it, which gave you like a drum machine, and he wanted to basically get that drum machine to work and program it on the ZX81, except he had no idea how to do that. Right. And because I was always, I was a bit, I was cocky back then as well. So I, I, I kind of, I, he felt that maybe I could do something with it. And I hadn't done any programming or anything. I just made it sound like I knew what I was doing. And he lent it to me for six weeks and it came with the manual. And the manuals in those days really just basically taught you how to program. They're really good manuals. And I just went through that and, uh, and in six weeks over the summer holidays, I was actually getting little games running up, you know, get, uh, up and running on it. No way. A little fake, fake Pac-Man, very, very slow Pac-Man. It was like one frame a second huh. and just playing around with it, stuff like that. Really, just really enjoying it. Did you ever get uh, your friend's um, synth stuff working that, uh, that he'd asked you to work? With? No, not. I tried for like five minutes yeah. to get get that stuff working. And I was like, oh, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. And then I just started reading the manual and playing around on it myself. And then I gave it back to him after the six weeks and said, no, didn't get any of that done. And then he said, oh, oh, well. <laughs> and he didn't know he didn't know he'd sparked my entire programming yeah. career in in those six weeks. <laughs> it's a, yeah. I could I make you this uh, drum programmer, but here's a clone of Pac-Man for you to yeah. enjoy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so then I saved up and I got one for myself. And then a little bit of time afterwards, I saved up again and got a Spectrum. And just oh. those are the those are really the home computers or home consoles we had mm. in our house yeah. uh, for the next several years, basically. Oh. So the uh, the format of the podcast, Dylan, is that I'm asking you to pick the five video games you want to immortalize in your very own games machine and market to the world. Um, your first uh, your first game comes from 1988, which I guess is a little bit into your programming journey. Um, yeah. Can you can you tell us about this game? What what is it, and when did you first play it? Okay, well, it's uh, it's Courier Command on the Amiga. It was the first game that I actually played through until morning, like until I actually saw like the, the dawn of the day outside. And I played a lot of games until then, obviously on the ZX Spectrum. There's some great games there as well, really good games. 
none of them were as kind of engrossing and kind of well, addictive, I suppose, as a carry command. And the game itself is basically a fully 3D RTS. It's like an RTS, really. Yeah. It has you controlling this like uh, futuristic carrier, like on on this like big sea somewhere. And you kind of go through and you take over islands and you, you set them up to be either like manufacturing islands <laughs> or defense islands and stuff like that. And there's a whole load of islands on this sea. And then the enemy carrier, there's an enemy carrier that you can't see also going around the same map doing the same thing. And this is all done in really quite like quite a grand level of 3D. You know, you are this carrier, you carry four like amphibious assault vehicles and you carry four flying vehicles i think called mantas and the, the amphibious vehicles are called walruses um, and the carrier itself has like a multitude of like weapons and uh, radars all kinds of stuff you know and you repair it all based on like what islands you have and you feed them all through and um, you can you can go in and you can fly these all these things around you can drive them all around go to the island all in 3d take it over um if the enemy has the island you actually got to you know, fight them, Earth. and the the vehicles you aren't flying uh, go into uh, go into some an autopilot mode, so you can set them to like go to waypoints and things like that. And it's surprisingly advanced for its time. I mean, nineteen eighty eight, right? That's pretty crazy. I was probably in my yeah. last year of school before joining Argonaut at the time. Mm. And it, this is a little bit before Command and Conquer and some of those really famous um, real-time strategy games of the 90s. Yeah, or, or like Dune 2. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, th- and those weren't even 3D, right? So they just, like, over, uh, looked um, from above to kind of 2D games. Yeah, like a board game, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So these are, Curricon is actually fully 3D, you know, first-person view, basically a, a sort of 3D shooter in a way. And that was... It was just something very unique at the time. Yeah. And I think there's a remake a couple of years ago. I haven't tried that, uh, the remake. I don't want to ruin my, my childhood <laughs> memory. Yes. But, uh, you know, the original version uh, was just engrossing. Yeah, really engrossing. And and that's when I got the sense, oh, games can actually be made to be this addictive. You know, like to, you could actually play a game for like 10 hours. And I'd never All through really, the night. Yeah, and I'd never really done that before until that point. Uh, did you get in trouble for, for playing games all night? No, no, no. My, yeah, my parents were very hands-off at that point at least. Right, okay. So yeah. I was t- towards the end of my schooling days, I think if it had yeah. been a few years earlier, they'd have had a few words. <laughs> <laughs> what, did, uh, what did your parents do for work? Just like normal office, kind of office work. Um, yeah. My dad actually got into programming after he saw me getting into programming. Oh, and, really? And oh. sort of went into, yeah, kind of went and re-studied uh, to do that. Um, really? And ended up being, oh, a, yeah, being a sort of consultant in Switzerland or something like that. Uh, <laughs> it's like, this is after I've, I'm, I'm already in Japan at that point. But uh, yeah, it's quite interesting to see. He kind of went, oh, if you can do it, I can do it. <laughs> right. He picked up the Spectrum manual and worked his way through it. Yeah, yeah. No, by that time, it was... Um, I think we were already at the 486 PCs at that point. Yeah. And so right. I think he learned on those. Yeah. Yeah. And you, um, so, I mean, it's in your early teens, I guess, that you're learning to program on, on the spectrum. And um, you're still at school at this point, but I read that you, you decided to drop out of school to start start work, basically, it, working in the games industry. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty bold move, I suppose, at 16, 17. What, what pushed you to do that? I was... Basically, at that point, I was programming a lot. I felt that my skill at programming had kind of 
got past like the education system. Like it had gone beyond what the educate, you know, what school could teach me anymore. Yes. And I had that. So I was trying to do, um, so while I was at school, I applied for a job at Argonaut software and I took my spectrum demos with me, uh, which were 2d and they were, they were pretty good demos. I had kind of fun, uh, fun games. And they were really impressed with those games, but because they weren't 3D, they said, oh, well, you know, when you have something in 3D, send it in. Uh, but yeah, we really like these. These demos are really good. You know, you show a lot of potential. Uh, and so I went back and I was still going to school. And um, and I started programming. I had an Amiga. I hadn't really started programming at that point. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll buy all the manuals and I'll start learning, you know, properly how to program this as well. Uh, so I started programming the, the Amiga and I made a 3D demo eventually, but when I was in the initial stages and I was trying to work out how to do the 3D uh, and what you know, rotation and projection, projection points and stuff like that, yes. then I went and asked my math teacher. You know, I said, I've got these points and I want a, I want a very fast way, you know, something that the Amiga could cope with to rotate these points and project them into 2D. And, yeah, the rotational stuff, he'd like just throw throw me a book with like with matrices in, which was you couldn't really use matrices at the time, uh, not not very efficiently anyway. But he had no idea, like, for the for the perspective conversion in any way whatsoever. He just because he's a traditional math teacher, he just didn't know. Yeah, sure, yeah. And I was like, well, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back and I and I learned it by trial and error. I just thought, okay, I need to do this. How do I do it? And I just and I kind of solved the almost like doing a crossword puzzle. I kind of solved the issue mm. myself right. by just experimenting and seeing what I could do with it and getting a good result on screen. And I knocked up a three D demo with that and I sent that in and then Argonaut called me up a couple of days later and said oh okay do you want a job then <sighs> and so I said okay because I think I'm going to learn a lot more at Argonaut you know than at school at this point and that's yeah. that's why I left and joined wow how um so where where was Argonaut based it is in London which bit of London uh, it's northwest London it was okay. in uh, uh, Mill Hill at that point uh, and it was a semi-detached house you know it's basically Jez had bought a house. Jez and the sister. Yeah, yeah. He'd bought a house for him to live in after Starglider 1 and Starglider 2 made him some money. But he never ended up living in the house. He ended up just using the house as a as the office and we all moved in and made games there. Right. Wow. A little uh, sort of Fagin's gang. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Young programmers. Yeah, very young. Yeah. Everybody's very, very young. I mean... <laughs> Jez Sam was like twenty three at the time, <laughs> right? So, I mean, <laughs> the veteran of the group. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically, yeah, yeah, pretty crazy. That's amazing. Did you? Did it take much to convince your parents to let you do this? Uh, you know, what would have seemed, I imagine, like quite a reckless thing. Yeah, I mean, my mum was always a bit like, you know, you sure, but then she, I think she was a bit of a rebel herself when she was young. So I hey. think she thought, oh god, I can't really get in the way. He seems to know, he seems to be a very good programmer, you know, yeah. just from all the, the stuff I was making. And uh, it's not like I was like out on the streets doing drugs or anything, right? So, <laughs> you know, it's still it's still a fairly, even though she didn't understand it, she could tell probably that it was a fairly intellectual thing at least, right? Uh, and so she's she kind of was okay with it. And, uh, uh, and I didn't get too much trouble. Yeah, sure. Such an interesting like time for that to happen because like you say, you're going to your math teacher to ask these questions 
I suppose it's right at the very advent of 3D in computing. So it's not like there were that many people around who could actually really help you anyway. You know, nowadays, yeah. if a kid did that, there's all sorts of resources, aren't there? But um, Yeah, I it, mean, now it's easy. <laughs> yeah, and you, you probably wouldn't have made the decisions you did now because, you, you know, but this was no, really the no. only way you could go and learn and yeah. you know, to immerse yourself, wasn't it? And, I, and yeah. I learned so much in that first year, right? I mean, because suddenly I was thrown into this team of of uh, programmers who were all making 3D games, you know, yes. all of them. So you could just ask any of them for hints and tips or help or anything at all really it was great so in that first year you know just learn a hell of a lot way more than i could have done in any other way but yeah i don't recommend anyone does that now no <laughs> uh, but at that time at that time especially if you're in the north of england or i mean i was initially in the north of england like near near chester but later on i was in london uh. and even if you're in london like yeah there, there weren't any resources available there's no internet right so you can't uh. even search for anything um the most informative place was really um like ECTS, if you remember that, there's maybe yeah. the precursor to that. Um, yes. I remember going to a show in Earl's Court where all these little booths of like almost like hobbyists and with like selling like stuff like the Amiga manuals uh, from EA and and just and that's where I got my first actual programming manuals for the Amiga. But it was very very like out the back, you know, the the sort of back of a car type type <laughs> thing. It felt it felt like at that time. Very small, very small affair. Someone beckoning you over, do you want an Amiga manual? I can sort you out. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and and even at that point, really, not many people were doing 3D. So uh, even in England, um, in those kind of hobbyist circles, there weren't a great amount of people. It's just started to kick in a bit later. Uh, it was a bit too maniac. Yeah, it was. It was yeah. 2D was a lot easier. Well, you've mentioned uh, your second choice for your console right at the start of this chat, but uh, let's, yeah. let's come to it now. So it's... Uh, it was one of the games for the NES or the Famicom uh, from 1988 as well. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so um, I mentioned it earlier, but, you know, I started working with Nintendo and I thought, well, I should probably buy a Nintendo console. <laughs> and the NES uh, was had this big relaunch, relaunch thing with uh, a Super Mario Bros. 3 pack-in. And I played a bit of Super Mario World on the prototype Super Nintendo uh, when we were at Nintendo a few months earlier. And I thought, oh, it's actually kind of fun. And so when Super Mario Bros. 3 was packaged with uh, the, the NES, and the, obviously the Super Nintendo wasn't in, yeah, wasn't going to be for a while, uh, uh, I thought, oh, I'll get that. And I took it home and I started playing Super Mario Bros. 3. I had the same thing where um, I got really into it, just uh, really addicted to it, loved it, you know, from beginning to end. And I loved the variation. And I there was a lot of, I mean, I played a lot of like UK-based games at the time. And apart from Carrier Command, you know, a lot of the UK games had a great premise. And it was really, they kind of fell over a little bit later in the game. Like, you know, so they put everything at the front of the game and you get you go, oh this is great it's great you're playing <laughs> it playing it and then you get like a third way of the way through and then you're like oh it's just it's kind of fizzled out a bit or it's got really hard like you know the the, the difficulty ramp goes really high to stop you kind of getting to the end of the game and with super mario brothers 3 i felt i mean there was there was there were a couple of really difficult levels at the end 
But in general, it was a very even affair all the way through. It was just interesting all the way through. Um, it wasn't ridiculously difficult. And I really kind of was impressed by it. Yeah. You know, as well as addicted to it, you know, for the, until I completed it. So it's one of the first games actually in my life uh, that I fully completed, and and probably maybe it was actually the first game I fully completed, and I was so like proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> and and I just think it's fun. It's got all those like little extra little items you can pick up, uh, like the uh. to to give you give the Mario a little bit of extra boost or whatever. You can you get select select the little item before you start the stage, and just little really little helpful little things like that. And I liked. I liked all the silly little um, puzzle games, you know, the card matching and all that silly stuff as well. It's just a lot of fun, I thought. Yeah, really playful game, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, really. And it's colourful and bright and it runs well as well. You know, it's, it's, it's great. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So let's, um, you know, let, you, you, we started our chat talking about you, this meeting showing off your, your prototype. How was it that um, a group of teenagers from northwest London came to to go to Japan on a plane and, and take their demos with them? Yeah, it was uh, Jez San's uh, kind of like salesman prowess, I think. It was like he um, he basically, we well, we obviously we made some really unique demos we had a 3d like a 3d game running on the game boy and we also had like a sort of um, a 3d game running on the nes as well a very simple sort of thing on there as well were these demos or, or prototypes or were they finished at this point the one on the game boy was actually signed to mindscape so it was actually sort of getting along right moving along in development so it's actually we had quite a lot of i mean it was only me doing it nice. but we were there was like a, a final game as a goal for that but we got it running so well that when Jez went to, uh, uh, I think it was one of the CSs, one guy at Nintendo uh, saw it, and then it just kind of spread like wildfire within Nintendo, really. Yes. And uh, we were kind of summoned. So Jez came back from CS, and then he uh, he said, okay, have you got a passport? Because you're going to go to Japan in two weeks. <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, uh, no, I don't have a passport. So I had to kind of <laughs> rush to get a, you know, I've never thought about going abroad. That was uh, it, really. You know, we, we flew over. So it was the first time you'd ever left left England. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, around the same time, so it was like killing two birds with one stone. I actually went to Paris with a friend, but yeah, the, 
I'm not sure what the I can't remember the order whether I went yeah. to Japan first and I went to Paris, but it was around the same time. I remember yeah. like within <laughs> within two weeks of each other. Right. Uh, so it was like all of a sudden I was like going abroad twice in in one month. It was quite quite <laughs> mad. Two di- two very different countries. We flew over. It was just like you know what is this place? It's just it was just so different. <laughs> yeah. So they're like yeah, vending machines everywhere. Yeah. That was the biggest uh, you know sort of impression I got mm-hmm. uh, as soon as I got off the plane. And did you meet? Did you meet them in? Well, you you went to Kyoto, but did you land in Kyoto? We landed in Osaka. Okay, we landed in Osaka. Yeah. So we were, so we so we we got a taxi from the airport to, to Kyoto. I just remember looking out the window; it's dark, and just seeing all the vending machines go by, and just like this is weird. This is like surreal. <laughs> all these vending machines. What do they do with all these vending <laughs> machines? And uh, we went to the hotel, and uh, Miyamoto Izushi, uh, who is one of the guys who worked with Yokoi on the Game Boy met us in the lobby with the Nintendo America guys. They're like I think it's one or maybe two people from there as well. And we all met in the lobby and uh had a quick like evening drink, I think. I think we were all tired. So we just kinda of met, had a drink, had a chat. I got introduced to like Miyamoto and Izushi at that point and I didn't yeah, I d I didn't know who they were, so <laughs> it's just I mean he was I mean Miyamoto was very young at the time. He's like he told me, I remember very clearly because I asked him, so how old are you? I was like very, you know, he doesn't normally call me ask me about how old people are. But, and he said 38. And I was like, my mind was blown because there's like no one, there's, there's no one beyond 30 in the games industry in the UK. <laughs> Everyone was like under 25. Right. I'd never met anybody that old before. <laughs> it was so weird. It was just so weird having, yeah, you know, meeting someone that old in the games industry. Like, it just didn't make it, like, you know, I thought it was all just young kids right. until then, you know. I hope you didn't have that reaction towards him when he told you his age. Uh, yeah, I can't remember, actually. I probably did. Um, so, oh God, you're yeah. so old. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Gunpei Yokoi, who, the designer of the, the Game Boy. Was he, yeah, did yeah. you get to meet him on that trip? I know you worked on his team a bit later, but um, did you meet him? Yeah, he. we met him the next day. He was one of the guys who came in in the meeting, uh, Yokoi, and also a few other people as well. Um, I mean, there's about 20 of them, I think, came in. I can't remember the exact number, but there's a lot of people came into that meeting. Yeah. But that was when I first met Yokoi as well. Actually, he's the guy, he's, he's, he went out and summoned uh, Sakamoto as well into the meeting. Right. Because uh, probably he was thinking, oh, maybe you can make a 3D Metro or something, I don't know. Right. Um, Sakamoto was underneath Yokoi. Mm-hmm. He was in that group. I see. Uh, Miyamoto was in a different group. So, uh, Mimoto was in a group run by a guy called Fukui, <laughs> who is more like a business manager type <laughs> guy. Um, and they, they still, it's interesting, when I was talking to Sakamoto like, you know, a year or two ago, and he said that in his entire career at Nintendo, he's never ever worked with Mimoto <laughs> because they're always <laughs> they separate. They kept them separately. So they're, they're always in separate groups, <laughs> right? You know, completely separate groups. So they never ever had any crossover. <laughs> you know, they're, they've always known each other, always been friendly, but they just, of course. They should, and I thought it's just yeah. so interesting, you know. <laughs> like yeah, two, uh, yeah. Two, two, two designers that never, never worked with each other. They're so valuable to Nintendo that the company has to keep them apart just in yeah. case. There's <laughs> Maybe they implode or something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and um, what did they want from you? You know, they brought you out here, presumably because you've been doing amazing 3D things with the uh, with the Game Boy. Yeah. Do, you know how how soon was it when until they said, "Do you want to do you want to just work here? Yeah, and, and stay here at least." In that meeting, that first meeting, uh, they said they wanted 3D. They wanted to learn how to do 3D, and they had no idea 
how to do it. Um, and they, they knew how to draw it. So they, they showed us pilot wings or pilot wings. Um, and they showed an aircraft, you know, the, you know, the aircraft, the, bi, uh, the biplane that they, they'd created. And they said, yeah, Mimoto said he had to draw, you know, or they, not personally, but someone had to draw this, all the frames of the rotation. And they couldn't do all the rotations because it was just too many frames and too, too much uh, graphics memory. And so he said, how can we do this in 3D? Because it'll save us all this work, you know, yeah. it's just, just draw this in 3D. Argonaut had been working with um, a console maker called Conix that in, ended up not making a console. And it was called the Conix Multisystem. And I'd been programming on that as well before doing the Game Boy demo. Uh, <laughs> and it had all gone under. Like, you know, the Conix, uh, they made really good joysticks. I mean, maybe they're still around even, but they at the time they made really good joysticks. <laughs> um, and they tried to do this console without, before realizing how much it would cost them or something. I'm not sure, but there was something that something that fell apart in the funding side of that, and it all just went, it all just disappeared. Yeah. But it had custom chips in it. <laughs> and because we were we were quite involved in these titles, we we knew the people who, who had designed these chips, you know, and they were sort of ex-Sinclair engineers and ex, there was a company called Flair, basically, who, who made these chips. And uh, Jez basically just called up a couple of these guys who he knew, you know, were, were now out in the wild and looking for, you know, chip-related work. He basically called them up from that meeting, you know, directly, directly from the meeting room uh, with Nintendo. And, oh, and, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and said, uh, okay, we've got this cartridge, because we, we'd never seen the Super Nintendo before, right? So this is a prototype they'd shown us, and we, and we basically asked them for all the spec of the cartridge and all the pins on the cartridge. And uh, I said, all right, the, this is the pin spec. What do you reckon? Can we get a, can we get this chip into the cartridge? You know, can we get, get some sort of 3D booster or something in there? What do you reckon? And, you know, and they basically discussed it and decided right then that they could do something uh. and then with like balls of steel jez went to you know when i talked to uh you know um yamauchi uh -huh. uh, i didn't i wasn't in that meeting because uh. yamauchi's quite a fierce uh you know, yeah he was this, this president of nintendo at the time yeah the, yeah yeah the, and the sort of founder and everything right and he uh and jez said oh we can do it for this amount of money and he said some number that he thought was really high and uh, yamauchi said all right let's do it then because for him the number is really low right and this is the <laughs> so they probably could have asked for a lot more money yeah. and that's what turned out to be the super fx chip that gave 3d 3d effects to super nintendo games yeah. right yeah yeah and so then while the chip has been developed i made x with uh, sakamoto uh, the metroid director yeah. uh, and that's when i was working basically i was going back and forth from the uk about seven times a year and talking with uh, basically working in uh, Yokoi's group so <laughs> I was like directly in Yokoi so I got to know Yokoi quite well <laughs> he gave, even gave me like a candy budget because he saw me buying <laughs> so I come back from lunch yeah I come back from lunch and I go to the supermarket in Japan and they just sold all this weird candy that I've never seen before like just weird weird stuff like vegetable and fruit candy <laughs> you know like it's like you know cu cucumber on one side of the candy and and like melon flavor on the other side and stuff like that. And yeah. it's just weird, weird stuff. I mean, nowadays it's probably not so weird, but back then it was like, well, this stuff is weird. Yeah. And I buy tons of it, you know, to try, <laughs> try it all, it all out. out. To, yeah, yeah, I want to try everything and all this, all this weird stuff. And he saw this big pile of all the, all these different candies and he goes, oh, you can expense all that. I'll give you a budget and you can, you can expense it every day. 
Just get receipts and it will get. We'll, we'll do that. <laughs> Basically, give me a candy budget. <laughs> oh my! Yokoi was your sugar daddy. <laughs> he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally, literally. Yeah, yeah. Oh my so gosh! It was, That's it was funny. He was a good guy. He's a good guy. And basically, I was in the music room as well. So I got, because I wasn't in the main floor, because I probably see too many secrets. I don't know, something like that. So uh, I was in the music room for most of the time. And then I could go into the main room any time. But uh, it meant that I could actually get more friendly with like uh, quite famous uh, musicians like Hip Tanaka and, and sort of uh, Totake, Totakeke and uh, Totaka-san from like the you know, the Nintendo Animal Crossing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just, just got really friendly with those guys and just really just had a great time, really. Incredible. For that period that was the x period and then the chip was being developed all that time and then by the time the prototype chip was ready that's when miyamoto's group which is a different group said okay uh, now we need a team to start developing the first game for this chip yeah. initially we were building a prototype there uh, which was like based on star glider and we called it snes glider and you know we got that going and we were all, uh miyamoto was like looking at it and playing it and said oh, yeah it's a bit too you know, a bit too complicated or a bit, it didn't, you know, because it's very, it was a very European, very UK type 3D game. You know, it's a little bit complex, a little bit hardcore. Yeah. It wasn't really geared for the, 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 the Nintendo market, audience yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah, at all. And so, you know, and so we went, we went back at Christmas and we came back and the first thing he said, okay, over the new year, I've decided we're going to make it, a, you know, like we're going to make it a rail shooter and you're going to fly through these, like, you know, the, the tunnels and you're going to, chase things and, and do things in this kind of rail shooting kind of way and uh, so can you build this system and so we just had to suddenly build this like system we never built before which was like a scrolling kind of map system in a way you know yeah. 3d scrolling map um it's very unique at the time really there weren't really it was a unique 3d shooting game there weren't any other games like it uh, with that same uh, style of gameplay and uh and so we just built all this stuff from scratch to, to do all this stuff he was asking for. Uh, and it was at that point uh, when he said, oh, can you all move over? Can the team move over and just basically live here and, uh, for the next, you know, until this game's finished? And uh, so we did, you know, we went back. We went back one one more time to get all our, to get stuff. And then we then we basically came over and, and uh, lived in, in a hotel for the rest of the, the year. Extraordinary. Until, until we shipped, until we shipped. <laughs> well, we should we should come to your your third game, Dylan. I mean, this is uh, yeah. I could uh, listen to you talk about these days for a long time, but yeah, let's <laughs> stick, try and uh, crowbar the format in. So uh, t- yeah, 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 yeah. Tell us about your your third uh, your third game, which is from nineteen ninety three. Uh, ninety four, I think. Oh, ninety four. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Ridge Racer on the PlayStation. <laughs> Now, this is interesting because it kind of crosses over with the Nintendo stuff. So, I was developing Star Fox 2 at the time, and PlayStation came out. The first, you know, the flagship title, really, was Ridge Racer on it. And it ran at 30 FPS. It had textured, all the polygons were textured, which is, like, mind-blowing at the time. Uh, it never dropped, well, never often dropped frame rate. And it was just a lot of fun. Like, yeah, it was such a reactive kind of racing game. Really good, really good, yeah, sort of arcade feel. But also, you know, you need a lot of technique to play it. You know, to get to get those like long skids around the corner and stuff like that, and the drifts. And basically, everyone at Nintendo, because we got there was a PlayStation. They got a PlayStation and Nintendo. They had all the consoles as it came out. And there was this little area near where we were doing where we were making Star Fox Two, and with all the consoles all listed up or uh, or lined up. Um, they even had like a Neo Geo and stuff like that. Bingo! And we play, um, and Ridge Racer was the game we'd all play. 
So we get to about 6 p.m., maybe it's 5.30, but there was like a bell that rang uh, <laughs> for, for dinner time kind of thing. I like to say, okay, now it's time to go home, everyone, if you really want to. But when that bell rang, everybody kind of goes, okay, we can relax a bit. I would all go and play Ridge Racer. The Ridge Racer bell. Yeah, and the director of uh, Star Fox, uh, Iguchi, uh, and the director of Animal Crossing, the original one, he he, re- he got really good at it. You know, he was like, he'd be playing it for like an hour, like every every evening instead of uh, directing the game. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, I, I'd also go over and play play that with him. And so we'd have this like kind of little, you know, like time attack battle thing all the time. But he got so good at it. He got like, the I don't know, in the retracer, there's uh, uh black Lamborghini that appears if you get really good at it. Uh, that you have to then race against, and then you can actually drive the black Lamborghini. I think I think that's it's a long time uh, since I played this, but something like that. Uh, and he was like, he got that far in the game. He was so hooked to it, so addicted to it, and I was as well. And I eventually I, he got it before me, but I eventually got the black Lamborghini too. <laughs> and so I was quite proud of that as well. You uh, but, and the director of Animal Crossing racing your Lamborghinis around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> basically, that sparked my interest in working for well initially like namco because i thought well they're you know i'm not learning any more 3d from from the guys at nintendo uh, because they're they're not still not you know at that point they still weren't that good at 3d i suppose they hadn't really done many 3d games obviously yeah, yeah ridge racer was such a i mean it was really the first showcase wasn't it for console 3d in that in that way like really bold and you know, it was yeah, and fast, the, uh, high frame rate and yeah, everything. Yeah, very fast. Yeah, and it wasn't just one game, right? They had a uh, they had like Toshinden, and they, there's all kinds of games at there, and they were all looking yeah. really nice. Mm. And so initially, I thought, okay, Namco, once these Argonaut games working, you know, working with Nintendo on are finished, um, you know, there was a a rule um, a rule, so I couldn't actually go and work for Nintendo directly because it'd be like poaching. Uh, that they they had brought that in after Giles quit Argonaut and join Nintendo right and they introduced this rule and then it meant that I couldn't do it I couldn't do the same thing like Jez like kicked up a fuss about it right so so I thought well once this is finished I still kind of want to stay in Japan or, or I, I want to do something else and I, if I'm not working with Nintendo I kind of thought well okay who can I work with who's good you know like it's going to be a good place to go for and I thought okay Namco looks pretty good and it was very fledgling days of the internet and they had like a very minimal kind of web page or something there wasn't even a web page I don't think they had some information on the net somewhere. It's, just, it's 1994, right? It's very, very early on. Uh, and I uh, and I found an address for their, like their their server or their admin or someone, and I basically emailed it and you know saying, you know, if you, could I, you know, is there any chance I can like apply and get a job with you guys? And I never got a response. And so that was where my career branched from Namco to Sony. So I thought, okay, what if if Namco aren't responding, you know. I mean, it's just an admin of a survey. I mean, I was just being naive. But, okay, I'm going to try and go for the big guys. I'll try and get a job at Sony. Uh, and um, a guy posted on Newsnet at the time uh, with a job, like a job advert um, on Newsnet. And it was a producer at Sony in Foster City, a PlayStation. And they said, like, you know, uh, we're looking for engineers and you know, programmers and, you know, artists and game devs. And I emailed that guy and he was like, Oh yeah, <laughs> we'll come bring it for me. Oh, the programmer Star Fox, come over now. So yeah, he went very went very quickly. So he was a good response. So I didn't really look back after that. Right. And so PlayStation. So one reason why why Ridge Racer's in here is because it was really the game that kind of drove me to kind of look at Sony and look at Namco and yeah. 
look at the PlayStation in general and think, oh, this is actually a pretty good machine yeah. and end up working there. So it's a, like a key pivotal moment in my career. How did you find the move to the States? You know, you've, I guess you've just acclimatized to, to Japan and, you know, learn the language and all of that kind of thing. And then, and then suddenly you're off again to the other side of the world. What was that like? Yeah, that was, uh, it was interesting. It was like the UK, but, but with more sunshine and, and better food. <laughs> And, and guns. And cars as well. So I learned to drive. I had to learn to drive. Yeah. Um, so I learned to drive going to America. And uh, basically, I enjoyed it. And it's, it's, everything was like kind of big and bold. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very big and bold and different again. Uh-huh. And for the first couple of years, at least, I, you know, I kind of enjoyed that life. And it, and it was it was when San Francisco, that, that whole area, the Bay Area, wasn't as ridiculously expensive as it is now. It was much more right. normal. It's still expensive, apparently, but it didn't feel as yeah, you know, didn't feel like ridiculous. And you know, I'd, and I was renting this uh, this great like house with a garden, uh, even with a cherry tree, yeah, cherry blossom tree, and uh, like out out in the redwoods. You know, it's like a very utopic kind of feel. Um, yeah, lovely. Yeah, so it was really nice. It's yeah, it's really nice. Uh, and I, I I do like going back to that area, like going to, and sort of walking through like uh, there's a there's like the redwood kind of forests you know like north of san francisco mm, beautiful yeah and it's great yeah it's absolutely great so that taught me you know that taught me a lot of things it was a good step i think and i met a lot of people so because playstation at the time in the u.s hadn't sold even a million at that point so it was like really early playstation days mm, right. and i remember like about i don't know six months after i joined it started doing well the PlayStation started selling they weren't sure at the beginning so in the beginning felt like the PlayStation wasn't selling in America because Sega had this big brand name. Mm, yeah, yeah. And even the the boss of the uh, PlayStation at the time quit and went back to Sega. Uh, Bernie, oh, what was his name? Bernie, the, the, yeah, I know he, he died. I think he died recently, actually, I think, but maybe, I'm not sure. Um, but he was there like for the, for the first six months and then he thought maybe the Sega's going to do better. Mm. So he kind of went back. Yeah. <laughs> so he went back to Sega and then, and, and uh, so that was quite interesting. But then the PlayStation, suddenly everything started to kick off uh-huh. and it suddenly reached a million and then it went, yeah, went ballistic after that. But uh-huh. I remember us having uh, like, you know, the sort of like million PlayStation sold party. Uh-huh. And there are all, and at the time there were all these like young executives there or young Sony people like Andrew House and like uh, Phil Harrison and and uh, you know a very young Kataragi and people like that they're all there at this party and it was such still such a small group that you know you just could meet them all and have you know be friendly with them and it was, it was quite you know an interesting it's an interesting difference to Nintendo because Nintendo yeah. didn't have any of those kind of parties yeah. they didn't have any kind of like networking that sort of American thing yeah and so that was very different that's right you had to talk a lot if in America you have to talk a lot yeah yeah, yeah. they'd just <laughs> ring a bell and everyone would applaud for 30 seconds <laughs> and then you have to go home in, in, in Japan it's like that yes exactly, <laughs> exactly. A lot, every lunchtime every lunchtime <laughs> the bell bell at lunchtime there's a bell five minutes before the end of lunch to get back to your desk and then there's a bell when lunch is over oh. and you should be working God, it's like school isn't it goodness me it really was, it was. <laughs> they have, even have a school they even have a dinner hall right and it feels like school dinners yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you eat there it's like Oh, I'm just back at school now. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Okay, let's let's come to your uh, your fourth game then, which is from the year two thousand. So I guess uh, around the around the the time when you're working on the PlayStation two. Um, can you tell us what, yep, what this yep. game what, what this game is? Okay, so this is uh, Smuggler's Run. It's actually I played it in Japan, it's, so I was already working at Sony Japan at this point, That's um, and it was called Crazy Bump. <laughs> Some, it's a stupid name, yeah. Crazy Bumps. Oh, what a stupid name. Uh, but maybe it sounded better in Japan. I don't know. But it, the, the 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 Western name is Smuggler's Run. I really loved that game. That was a a really good showcase of like PS2 tech, huge draw distance, uh, distance um, uh, physics. I mean, not particularly advanced physics for all the cars and stuff, but it's just fun physics. Um, yeah of an early precursor to games like Motorstorm and stuff like that um, except the game itself was almost like um, an open world it's like an open world game yeah. like it's an open world rally off-road kind of rally game and you had the stupidest police AI ever in existence so it create it was like uh, the Blues Brothers like you could you could set it up so the Police cars would come charging over like a like over a hilltop, and just go smashing into the valley, and then one after another, all these police cars would come flying over, and just smash into each other, <laughs> and um, and so I just had a lot of fun in the game, and the missions were varied right. uh, and enjoyable, and and kind of you know uh, and fun, and just the controls were just the whole thing was just really well done, um, and this of course was made by Angel Studios, who became Rockstar yes. eventually yeah. so it's like a pre-Rockstar um, I'm not sure when GTA 3 came out um, but I hadn't I hadn't played GTA 3 at this point maybe it's pre-GTA 3 I'm not sure but there's definitely probably some crossover there in, in tech but I I, know, I I always recommend this game to, for anybody who's got a PS2 just go and play the play the hell out of Smuggler's Run it's stupid uh, but it has a really good game structure of like sort of missions but it, the best thing is it's just an open world so you just play around in it, like a sandbox almost yeah. in a way it's like a, a ratty sandbox so I recommend that game just on the pure fun level yeah you know it's just, just yeah wonderful so. it's the kind of game that it doesn't they, they don't get made that often these days do they where everything's no. a sm- smaller indie or a or a big Hollywood blockbuster yeah we don't see this kind of game too much now I'll so. tell you a game that's similar maybe similar in feel in some ways is uh, Rocket League mm, sure yeah yeah Rocket League's more like you know tournament based but like the silly, stupid, physics-y fun yeah. bit, it's actually similar. It's actually similar. So there's a there's a, a bit of a similarity, similarity there. But as you say, yeah, they don't really make these kind of things anymore. Like they, yeah, I'd like I'd like to. I would definitely make a Smuggler's Run three. Yeah, and I would just be like totally into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the the beginning of the pitch right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, you talk there about being a PlayStation when it goes to, it explodes really. Everyone was a bit sceptical of Sony entering this market. And then, uh. and then by the end of the place, first PlayStation's run, it's really one of the, well, it's dominant. Yeah. Um, and then you, you, as you say, move back to Japan, start working on PlayStation 2. It's difficult, I think, for younger people perhaps to understand the level of hype around the PlayStation 2. 
you know, that people were so excited in a way that I don't think we've ever really seen since. Yeah, yeah. And it was, that was partly Sony's very fine messaging, the emotion engine, it was called, wasn't it? That yeah. This yeah, is going to yeah. be, this is going to be the console that makes us all cry, that kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. What did you, you know, on the inside, did you feel that pressure? Were you, were you concerned? Were you excited? How did it feel to be part, you know, behind closed doors with all of that mounting expectation? Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I moved to Japan, um, because I wanted to work on it before anyone else. So during the PS1 days, towards the end of the PS1 days, when I was uh, in America, I'd kind of met and got to know some of the engineers over on the, um, you know, on the on the hardware side uh, at PlayStation in Japan, because they were always giving us these little like tips and secrets and unlocking little things for us in the PS1 that kind of really gave us an advantage, like really gave us a boost on the PS1. And I thought, well, okay, uh, I want to work with those guys. I want to get, I want to do cool stuff like that on the PS2, uh, whatever, wherever it is. I didn't know what the spec would be at that point. And uh, I basically said, oh, can you can you ship me over to Japan to work on the PS2, like a prototype? Uh, and Sony said yes. So they transferred me over, and like within a few weeks, I was given the we were given the spec, you know, for the PS2, or uh, and, and started like the learning process about you know what it's going to do. And basically, the spec for the PS2, if you compare it in performance like to the PS1, I think one reason for the hype is that the sheer multiplier of performance was so high on the PS2, really, that like it's the biggest I think we've ever had yeah. like between any of the consoles right. ever. The, yeah, the technological uh, step, evolutionary step, was so huge, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, it had a few, it had a few issues, a few oversights, as yeah, these kind of things do. But the raw performance of that, of that, with the the custom chips and the the custom graphics chip, the size, the width of the bus on the graphics chip was humongous. Like it was just, it's, it, it, it was like it was, it was just huge. It was like, like the fact it even had a bus, a dedicated bus for doing like graphics and stuff like that. You know. But it was just—it was just massive. Like you could do, um, you could do so much with the screen uh, that you could never have done before. Like just all kinds of like massive brute force stuff, because the power is just such a leap ahead of, of the PS One and anything else at the time. And yeah, you know, I think that's one reason for the hype. I mean, for example, the, the you know the demo I made, the duck in the bath demo for the PS Two. Uh, basically, that was uh, Kudaragi said that we don't want to we. The PS2 is so amazingly powerful. I want you to do something that doesn't use polygons. And, you know, that was a bit, you know, because the, the graphics chip was kind of geared for polygons. Um, so you can't really escape the polygons in there, but, um, or the triangles. But I thought, okay, well, there's a, I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll make something that will create the triangles on the fly from, from curved surface, surface representations. And I, had a friend, an old exile, not friend, who uh, called Mike Day, who is really good at kind of math. And I sent him, I sent him a few emails. I just said, "Can you just give me a few pointers because I want to work out a way to do this? I've never done it before." Yeah. And he gave me a few pointers and a few like chapters to read in some of the some of the the, the common graphics manuals at the time, the graphics books at the time. Yeah. And uh, I just read through them and I started doing a, a, an experiment with them. And before even I got the hardware for the PS2, I was just experimenting with this thing. And I kind of got this like really fun kind of cool thing where I had, I had these like curved surfaces being converted to triangles on the fly, which meant that 
the res you, you couldn't tell you couldn't see the polygons you know because you could have as many as you like really right um, gives the appearance of it being smooth and round and all of that yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's around so i mean it made kudaragi happy <laughs> and and you know he's running at that time on the pc uh using a voodoo 2 card it was running i don't know five fps maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe three fps but yeah it looked good uh and then they said um okay we, we've got your big we've got you one bit of hardware and they said this big box has the GPU in it. And I said, well, what about the the other chips? <laughs> he said, no, no, you just got the GPU first, the GS. <laughs> the GS chip is in this, and that's all you've got. And what you have to do is on the PC, you generate all the graphical commands you'd normally send or you'd normally prepare on the on the actual chips on the on the machine, but you do them on the PC, and you basically send this like big one gigabyte, I think it's one gigabyte, command buffer to this GS cube, and it will just run them all. <laughs> so there's no, interact- no interactivity whatsoever. <laughs> But I, so I did that and I got my, my PC demo spitting out this command list and it was like, you know, like one second of 60 FPS graphics, basically, <laughs> in this big one gigabyte command list. And I sent it over and it took like 10 minutes to send over to the machine, got it in there and you could keep replaying it. So you could just keep replaying the same six, 60 frames, same <laughs> one second of animation. Yeah. And it ran at 60 FPS and looked phenomenal. Right. It just looks so good. It just looks so good. It's like the smoothest, nicest looking 3D I'd ever seen. And like I remember, um, you probably heard of like Ueda, Ueda Fumito, right? Yeah, yes. the guy who was behind Ico, uh, Ico and all those games. Yeah, Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah, this is before Ico had come out. And he was working downstairs on a PlayStation 1 version of Ico <laughs> before, before it eventually got transferred to PS2. Um, and he wasn't very happy with the graphics on it and stuff like that. And I remember him coming to my desk and I'd never really met him before. He goes, can you show me the demo that everyone's talking about? Because it, <laughs> it created this big buzz mm. uh, within within the, the offices there, and and I showed him, and he goes, and um, and every and he's just like, oh, this is really cool, you know? What can we do with this? Uh-huh. And so I got like, that going, that, but that was without even the CPU or anything like that. And then I thought, okay, I better start building up the system on the PC to kind of emulate at least what the PS2 chipset is going to be like, and I started. Pro, I created like this sort of fake system where I could program the coprocessor to uh, to generate all these commands, and it would basically be emulating the eventual real coprocessor, the VU one <laughs> in in the PS2. And I kind of got it working, and it roughly roughly got it working. And it's pretty compli- it's pretty complicated thing to do, but I kind of got it working. And then about three weeks before they were going to demo the PS2 in front of the world in, in Tokyo, they came to me again and said, "Okay." We've got you now a bo- another box, and this is it. This has the the chip, all the chips in it, and and the GS the GS chip in it as well, and it all kind of it should all roughly work. Uh oh. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is three weeks before, and they said, okay, now can you get all your stuff to run on this on the real thing? So basically, I worked my ass off, like yeah, because it was it was fun as well. You know, I wasn't it wasn't like you know slave labor or anything. Yeah. But I was just really got into it, and I. uh did it and I and I and I got it working and because I'd done all that sort of harness work, it got it I got it all working and then the demo ran and then, you know, on the stage it was it was interactive, you know, with you could actually float the little ducks around yeah, the little duck around and the the submarine and stuff like that and the water you could drain the water from the uh-huh. you know, it just all looked really nice. And uh Kodaragi went up there and uh basically demoed it to the world and then from that point on there were there were requests from people like Spielberg and all these people who wanted to see it and play it and 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 use it and um and it kind of cemented itself in the sort of like the legend of uh, of the PS2 
you know it's a it's a pretty pretty wild time really very skin of the teeth incredible <laughs> did you ever go back and tell your friend mike that uh, some of the maths pointers he gave you uh, found its way onto this stage in this demo oh yeah yeah no i thanked him greatly yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 no i didn't mean that you wouldn't have thanked him but i uh, but i bet that was uh i bet he got a kick out of that that would have been great oh yeah yeah because yeah. he was really he, he's a he's a clever chap yeah <laughs> mm. yeah wow incredible okay we better we better come to your fifth and your final game here which is from uh, 2018, can you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, so this is Dark Souls. I just have my first kid, Jamie, and Jamie and his mom are still in the hospital. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm at home, I've got really nothing to do, you know. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll get a game and I'll, I'll try this game. And I had, I'd seen some people talking about it. Yeah. And, on, and, and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a whirl. And I played it. I, I booted up and I played it. And I played for about, I don't know, three hours. And I was like, this is crap. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is rubbish. This game, this game, like, like what is it even trying to do like this is just ridiculous like this is like the worst game ever like like it just die all the time i can't work out what i need to do the graphics seem kind of muddy uh you know what what the hell is this like this piece of rubbish (laughs) i think i posted it on somewhere like like fledgling what 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 we're using at the time but it was uh Facebook or something like that, Twitter. I don't know. But sorry, there was something. I'm not sure what it was on, but I remember talking about it. And the people, and then someone said, um, "Yeah, but you just got to keep playing. You know, you you'll see what it you'll see what it becomes." And I left it for a week. Anyway, so I went back into it. I thought, okay, these people who I kind of respect, you know, their, their tastes in in games. With uh, I'll try it again. I'll go in and try it again. And I and I tried it, and I got and I got past. I don't know. I was enlightened. Uh, I got to this point somehow where everything just clicked. I just suddenly understood what the game was trying to do. And what it was, it totally changed the way I was. I, I played games. Because until then, I was playing games and I was thinking, well, you know, you, you, you play the system of the game, you know, so you kind of learn the controls and you learn, you learn how to do the controls and that, and then it's just kind of like, kind of react, reactive. Most games are fairly reactive. But with Dark Souls, the game is extremely skill-based and it's almost like a physical learning. Um, yes. And that was the thing that I'd never experienced in a game before then. Like, you have to, you actually have to physically learn um. the game. Like, like, like a sport. It's like playing, it's like learning <laughs> golf or, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, you don't just pick up a club and somehow you can, you can swing it and yeah. get like a hole in one. Right. So, um. and I say, like, oh, this is, this is different. I've never played a game that actually, that I actually have to physically learn and that the learning curve is so good. It actually feels 
like you really are learning. Like you really feel like you're learning. And and that was the beginning bit that got that started getting me really hooked. And there was like um, a boss, the Taurus demon. I think that's the name of it. And um, and this this bit, and I, I couldn't get past it. I was like, oh, this is terrible. And I, and I got to this other little bit where I got stuck. And then I didn't think the game was terrible. I just thought, oh, I, I can't get past it. This is really hard. And I came into the office, and one of one of the guys here, Nishikawa, said, "Oh, him? Oh, I just ran past him. You don't you don't have to kill him." <laughs> and I was like, mind blown. I don't actually have to kill him. I just run past him. And I just did that and I got past him and it was fine. And, I, and it, it, it didn't occur to me to kind of like think, oh, you don't, it's so physical. Uh, the game is so physical that you can actually, if you can dodge, if you can just get out of an area uh, or you just go, just just do it. <laughs> don't don't worry about like trying to follow like game. Logic, yeah, methods, yeah. Methods, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose, logic. Yeah, don't try and do that. Do what you need to do to survive. Yeah. And if that means exploiting like a bug here or there, that's actually part of the game. Yeah. Um, yeah, like some little like weird little technique. That is the game. And and the whole thing is all about that. Wonderful. I remember um I remember speaking I've, I've interviewed Miyazaki a few times, and um, but I remember him telling me once that um how bad his games are in like in those early days in demo settings, like they had it at the Tokyo yeah. Game Show. I think it was Demon's Souls, so the game that came out before Dark Souls. And just, you know, when people have only got 10 minutes on a show floor to play the game, they just sort of walk away going, what, this is terrible. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, no. But yeah, when you're right. Enlightens is such a good word for it. There comes a moment, doesn't there, yeah. where the scales fall from your eyes and you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Just then, one of the best games. And then, um, and so that was the Enlightenment side. And then the thing that actually kind of elevated it to kind of like, you know, oh, this is actually kind of god level uh really in game design mm. actually in game design yeah was where there, there's a few little places in there like this but uh one of them in particular was I can't remember the name of the character but the um there's a there's a cat in the forest and you get a ring <laughs> and you know and and you think nothing about it you go oh, i got this ring from the cat you know because I, I you know i was just in this forest and then i don't know about 20 hours later in the game i thought oh, i've got this ring and it gives you this little like little boost okay, i'll put it on so about twenty hours late, later in the game, I put it on, and then and then suddenly the cat summons me back to her forest in the game to attack invading human players, and for me that was like bloody hell that like and that was the first time I'd ever felt in a game that the game had control of me mm. rather than the other way around. Right, right? <laughs> it's like it's controlling you at that point. I was playing, I was happily playing in like, I don't know, some of this, one of the later stages somewhere, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And suddenly I'm summoned back uh, uh. to this forest that I hadn't been to for like 20 hours in game time. And I'm actually fighting human the equivalent of me, you know, in this forest. And uh, that was, that alone, that one idea alone deserves, you know, like Miyazaki deserves like uh, God status for that. <laughs> yeah. For that one idea. <laughs> I mean, and and the game's full of them, and it's not just that one idea. Yeah. It's full of them, right? And they're also then nothing's quite explained properly. Like you say, it's not like you get a. It's not like you get a big explanation of why you're going no, back to no, the no, forest no. to fight for no, this no, guy. No, 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 no. It's all mystical no, no. and weird. You're suddenly, you're suddenly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's and suddenly you read. And suddenly, so I went back. Yeah, you know, I read the. There was something that hinted that 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 might happen that I realised afterwards. Yeah. Um, I can't remember and read you know because you know you have all those like long lore descriptions and everything don't you you don't really read them all yeah. 
And then I suddenly realized in this game, you actually, you should actually read them because there could be you know, a caveat like that, that, that summons you somewhere when you don't want to be summoned mm, and yeah. stuff like that. But that was, uh, that was impressive. And I thought it was a very good use of technology, uh, sort of asynchronous online play as well, that I'd never really seen before that sort of asynchronous online networking play. And that kind of gave me the sort of the sparks of ideas that I ended up using in the Tomorrow Channel. Yeah, yeah. I thought, well, okay, that asynchronous kind of play can be used somewhere else. And I thought, okay, how could we use it? Yeah. How could, can we, let's try and use it in a different type of game, yeah. you know? And so, and that's how, that, that's kind of where the Tomorrow Channel came from. Yeah, like yeah. building around that kind of idea of like asynchronous online play and people not being, not being there all the time, yeah. but kind of being there partially, I suppose, in a way. Um, and it got, you know, it got expanded even further for Death Stranding, for example, and from people who worked at Kojima Studios that they would be playing the Tomorrow Children. So they were, you could tell that it's like every influences each other, you know, pushing forward. Yeah, it is like great. Game ideas. It's, it's great. Well, I, I mean, I have to say, uh, we haven't got, <laughs> we've only got up to the part of your career when you f- leave to found your own studio. So I might have to invite, uh, I might have to invite you back <laughs> for a second, for a second yeah, yeah. recording at some point. But um, I've, I've been around a long time, mould. <laughs> well, you've got some very good anecdotes. So, um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I've got a lot of those. Absolutely so. <laughs> wonderful. So, you, on your on your perfect console, we've got Carrier Command, Super Mario Brothers 3, Ridge Racer, Smuggler's Run, and Dark Souls. Um, a really a really good group of games there. Lovely. Interesting selection there. There's actually a, quite a few other games in between these that almost made the list as I'm well. I'm sure. So maybe we can talk about them in the next in the next one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's. Uh, we need a name to to give your console to market to the world. Um, have you have you had a think about what we might call this? Yeah. Well, you know, a console has to have a has to have like a a very good adjective. So I'm going to call it. So the adjective is going to be hyper. Yes. And the the noun is going to I'm going to it's going to be blue so it's the I've, it's going to be called the hyper blue nice and the blue is from like blue sky thinking mm. so like you know like uh, ideas you know that that are really unique and different and stand out and stuff like that. so it's it's going to be called the hyper blue it's going to be the best selling console <laughs> of all time thank you Dylan <laughs> well, you've been you've been super generous with your time and I know it's getting late there now in Japan so um, but just before I let you go. You, you know, at Q Games, you've worked on such a wide variety of different kinds of games and also with different partners. Yeah. So you've worked on stuff with Sony, but also virtual reality games with Oculus. And you've done Apple yeah. Arcade stuff more recently, as well as your... And Nintendo. And Nintendo, yeah, yeah. working closely yeah. with Nintendo EAD. Um, so, you know, what is, looking back at all, all of the things that you've done, what's your favourite space to work in, do you think? Um, you know, all these different expressions of video game from virtual reality to yeah, yeah. handheld what, what where do, where are you most comfortable um good question really i i think the pixel junk series is probably the most fun to work with because yeah. uh, it actually it was when we thought it up or when you know when i thought it up at the beginning i saw it as a way to let me make lots of games in lots of different genres because yeah. uh, i didn't want to i was a bit tired of always being like always having to do like a like 3d space shooting for example yeah you know because of the star fox history and i wanted to make lots of different games and if you well, we did it with the pixel junk series but we also did it with our dsa dsi wear series um, as well yes and i like that way of being able to jump between genres like um. just do each game really well but make each game like original like do something new every time as often as you can um you know, when we were working with Konami on like Frogger in Apple Arcade, for example, um, that 
that wouldn't be work we'd normally that wouldn't be really what q does normally we did that as a special case because frogger was one of the first games i ever played in my life you know, back when i was a kid and i actually made a a basic Im uh, version of that like on my zx spectrum back in like 1983 or whatever um so that was like a little special moment to be able to do that uh but in general if you look at all our titles it can be 3d and it can be or it can be 2d uh, that i don't mind either and I, I like both but working with like our own preferably even with our own engine um although recently we have to use yeah we kind of use unity uh, and unreal um a bit more now but but you know that is probably the best space like yeah. working with our own engine even if it's a little small one working with our own ideas and iterating and just kind of creating little quirky new experiences new control schemes uh -huh. or new just little different things you know uh -huh. that, that haven't really been done before they might extrapolate on some other game in some way but we always try and add something that's a bit of you know a bit of, a bit of extra spice uh -huh. in a way yeah yeah um I think that's the most enjoyable thing for any game creator, yeah. any game dev, I think. Yeah, yeah makes sense. Dylan, th thank you so much for, for your time and for sharing your stories with us. I've absolutely loved it, so thank you. Yeah, no worries. Uh, sorry, I probably talked a bit long there, but... No, not long <laughs> enough. Rambling on. <laughs> Rambling on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. Well, wasn't that wonderful? Thank you so much to my guest, Dylan Cuthbert. Oh, what an amazing treasure trove of stories Dylan was able to share with us there. We have had uh, some programmers on My Perfect Console before, Shahid Ahmad, for example, but I think Dylan is the first coder that we have had who has actually worked on a major console launch and release as he did as he was explaining there of course on the playstation 2 back in 1999 i guess is when it was first announced and revealed and the the duck demo came out that ken kutaragi showed off to the world uh, and then of course suddenly he's being called up by spielberg and all these other individuals to to see how on earth uh, he's he's done it what a great story and of course much earlier than that loved hearing Dylan's memories as a teenager turning up in Kyoto at Nintendo's headquarters, going out for a drink with Miyamoto and these other stars of the Nintendo constellation, not knowing who any of them are, <laughs> going in for, for this incredible meeting at the Nintendo Towers and essentially being shipped in really to teach Nintendo how to do 3D. Um, wow, I mean really what a key figure there at some really important moments in history uh, and of course i mentioned it in the introduction but just as a as a recap dylan worked on on x was the game he was talking about the game boy game that he worked on um when he first arrived at nintendo and then he was programmer on Star Fox, Star Fox 2 and then Star Fox command and Star Fox 64 3d and as well as of course all of the games that he's worked on at his own studio uh, also based in Kyoto Q Games. Um, so yeah, so grateful to Dylan for, for his thoughtful choices and uh, the way that he was able to so elegantly tie those into these brilliant anecdotes and memories. Playing Ridge Racer with Iguchi, the director of Animal Crossing, they're both competing to get, unlock the black Lamborghini. Wow, just good, great stuff, eh? 
Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. So, uh, yeah, you can write to me at uh, myperfectconsole at gmail.com uh, with any comments, with any thoughts, with any feedback. Um, if you would like to support the podcast financially, there's a couple of ways to do that now. So you can either go to Acast Plus and uh, for a small amount, you will get your episodes early and ad free. Uh, if you would like to become, you know, a bit more involved in the community around my perfect console, then go to the Patreon. Uh, there are lots of plans for things that are going to be happening there. I'm not quite sure at what stage all of those are, but you can go read about those on the Patreon and uh, and get involved and meet some other listeners and hear about future plans, get previews of which guests are coming up, uh, maybe ask some questions to those guests. And also later in the year, a chance to vote in some of the face-offs between uh, the consoles that we've had from previous guests as well. So anyway, lots of things to get involved with there uh, if you would like to, uh, which would be great. We'd love to have you. Um, yeah, if you get a moment and uh, then please do head along to maybe Apple Podcasts or Spotify and just leave a, leave a review if you've enjoyed this, if you've enjoyed past episodes but you don't want to bother with any subscriptions or anything absolutely fair enough Uh, there's lots of demands on all of us all the time these days but uh, yeah maybe you could just spend spare 30 seconds just to leave a nice review that would be much appreciated Uh, okay you can follow along on twitter at my perfect console with the o's removed you can follow me at simon parkin and uh, we're also on Instagram and all those other things that uh, that need doing. But it's a good way to keep in touch and see what's going on. Uh, and if you don't want to do any of that, that's absolutely fine. Just please subscribe and then we will be back again next week with one more guest. Their five games and another perfect console. Till then, goodbye. flexibility take yoga one flexibility with your health insurance check out united healthcare insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly medical dental and vision coverage that may be right for you more at uh1.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.